Radio Drone. And welcome to yet another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh, and with me... Oh, wait. Brad's not here. He's at that C2E2 thing. Bastard, he gets to go out there, and I gotta be stuck here. Well, since he's not here, let's talk magazines. I know normally we talk video, but magazines were all a part of our lives, especially if you were a horror science fiction fan like Brad and I were. You had the obvious ones, Starlog, Fangoria things like that, you know, and even though it sucked and was totally mainstream and uncool, we all had Entertainment Weekly and Premiere and things like that. The one I, one of the ones I liked a lot was Film Threat, especially in its first two incarnations. Now, you gotta remember, Film Threat initially started as uh, essentially a fanzine. You know, it was a photocopied, very punk style, and then it evolved into regular magazine, and then after that it evolved into a real magazine published by Larry Flint Publications. And then after that, Chris Gore, the creator of Film Threat and editor, was able to wrestle control back from Larry Flint, and he released a third incarnation of it. Film Threat was always one of those magazines that, especially in its first incarnation, was very much about the weird movies. About the stuff that you would never have seen in Entertainment Weekly. You would have never seen in Premiere. You would have never seen these films covered except by a fanzine. This is the magazine where I first heard about the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 1989 remake by the director of Café Flesh. I had no idea this film existed before I saw it in Film Threat. Film Threat also had the spin-off Film Threat Video Guide, which essentially focused as focused more on the VHS and obviously video side of the of the indie film industry. And Film Threat did go a little mainstream and like once Larry Flint took over, you started to see Macaulay Culkin in the magazine and things of that nature which you would have never seen in the old version but we'll get to that those of us out there who collected these we we very much enjoyed what these magazines used to be now some of them are still around I mean the corpse of Fangoria is still unfortunately lingering Fangoria is not the magazine it used to be I know the magazine is still being printed it is not the magazine it used to be. It it wishes it could be what Fangoria used to be. Now it's bland, it's ugly, it's massively overpriced. I mean, nine ninety nine an issue, and the magazine is filled with ads. That's ridiculous. Back in the day, Cinema Fastique was or Cine Fastique was was very expensive in comparison. You'd have Fangoria for say three ninety nine. Cinema Fastique would be something like seven or eight dollars. But the beauty of that was it was ad free. You got all those pages of content. Fangoria now it's ridiculous. They're nine ninety nine. The page count is lower than it used to be in the eighties and nineties. And over a third of the magazine is ads. I will not pay $10, a third of the magazine be ads. And then the other two-thirds basically be 
giant promotional items that go, Hey, the studios are giving us a whole bunch of money, so we want you to go see this newest piece of crap that we know is going to suck, but go ahead and see it anyway because it's big and it's pretty. Because that's what you tended to find tend to find nowadays in Fangoria. Back in the 80s, they were covering all the weird stuff. They were covering the movies that Starlog would not cover. And keep in mind, Fangoria and Starlog are owned by the, were back then owned by the same company. Fangoria used to cover weird movies, independent movies, movies in development, I'm talking low-budget stuff, $200,000, half-million-dollar movies. Nowadays, it's mostly big budget stuff. The cover is always something that is going to be quote unquote hot. You never see something like back in the day when they would have Videodrome and things like that on the cover. You'd never see things like that today. Never. Because today it's all about basically getting, basically trying to stay in the studio's good graces. What it comes down to is. If we give Paramount's newest big piece of crap a cover story, a big behind-the-scenes centerfold, and a big great review, well, then the next time we want something from Paramount, they're going to give us exclusive photos. They're going to give us the exclusive interview. If we don't give Paramount all this, then all of a sudden our competition starts getting all the interviews. All our competition gets the exclusive photos. It's ridiculous. Now, keep in mind, Fangoria, like I said, it's 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 a zombie. It's just out there walking, but it's dead. But there is some cool magazines out there. Rumorg is not bad. It's $9.99, but it's got a nice big page count. It's got a lot of good content. I, I disagree with some of their focus. They seem to focus a lot on European films, and it's just not personally my style. I'm not so much into the French and Spanish films as much as they tend to cover, but that's a personal thing. But it, it's always good coverage. They have lots of coverage on really weird things and different takes on, on the horror genre. But the best one out there is Horror Hound. Horror Hound is what Fangoria used to be and what Fangoria now wishes it could be. Horror Hound is cheap at, I think, uh, I think it's $7. It has a good page count. It's got great articles. It's crammed with information. Horror Hound is a great magazine. And then you had, you had others back in the day. You, had, you guys have to remember in the 80s and 90s, magazines were everything. I mean, Fangoria... I hate to keep bringing them up, but they tried everything to spread their brand. They had the spin-off magazine Gore Zone, which focused on obviously the gore stuff. They had another spin-off magazine called Toxic Horror. There was a, another magazine called Slaughterhouse. There was Chaz Balin did one called Deep Red. There was uh in the early 80s there was Monsterland. In the mid to late 80s there was Horror Fan. And then you had all the science fiction spinoffs. You had Starlog, and then there was um, SF Weekly, and it just kept, you know, and then you had Star Wars-specific ones, Star Trek-specific ones. You had ones for fantasy movies. You had Cinema Fastique. I mean, you could go and spend $50 a week on whatever magazine happened to be out. And that's not even 
counting if you happen to be a heavy metal fan or something like that and you were buying rip metal edge and uh, hit parader and circus and things like that this is all building to i sat down and interviewed chris gore like i brought up film threat earlier he was the founder of film threat he was the head editor in all three incarnations. Uh, most of you might know him. He's a little more famous now for he wrote the movie My Big Fat Independent Movie, and you can see him every week on uh, Attack of the Show on the unfortunate G4 channel that I have a lot of issues with. So let's let's check out the interview I did with Chris Gore of Film Threat Magazine. We have Chris Gore former editor and creator of Film Threat Magazine. I want to thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. What made you want to start Film Threat? Well, I, at, at the time, I was just sort of a young punk and just was attracted to anything that was counterculture, whether it be like, you know, music, especially film. Anything that was counterculture was something that, that I was attracted to. And at the time, there were a lot of punk rock fanzines out there. And I wanted to start one. I mean, I, I actually wrote for one that was uh, that a bunch of guys had done at my high school, which was Kimball High School. They started a magazine called The Truth. And some of the cover stories, it was, when I look back, it was very much like The Onion. You know, one of the cover stories was Santa killed by Iranian terrorists. A picture on the cover was Santa Claus blindfolded with a gun to his head. And then, uh, you know, just like sort of outrageous news stories like that. And then there were a ton of punk rock fanzines out there, like Maximum Rock and Roll, among others. And I thought, well, <clears throat> I'd love to do a zine, but I want to do it about film. And I want to be able to, either through satire or just some intelligent writing, write about my favorite movies that weren't necessarily at your normal theater. When I was a kid, I got, uh, I got a car, my first car when I was 14, which I worked on for like two years. And... Uh, I got a car because I wanted to go see movies. Most guys get a car because they want to get laid. So, but the car, the purpose of the car was so that I could drive movie theaters or like downtown, like the Detroit Institute, Institute of the Arts, the DIA theater, or to um, the rep theaters, like the Punch and Judy theater was a theater in Detroit that showed, you know, um, independent films and midnight movies and just anything that was kind of cult. And that was the stuff that I liked. It was like at the end of high school, I'd come up with like this name, Film Threat. I'm going to start this thing. It's Film Threat. So I had a name, but then I met this guy named Andre Seawood at Wayne State University. And he and I had become fast buddies. And he was very academic, but then I could make him laugh because I was always making jokes about movie-related stuff. And then I just felt as passionately as he did. And, and uh, you know, I, I, we just, I, you know, it was just a matter of like, all right, now I've got someone who can actually write some stuff that's intelligent. I, I, the thing that really was the spark was the movie Dune. I saw Dune, and I was so angry about it. It was just like, it really pissed me off. I was just like, it's David Lynch, my favorite director. I remember reading all about it. It was like a movie where I just was so sucked up in the hype for Dune, and this is before the internet, you know, where you kind of know something's going to be crap before it comes out. This was, uh, I, I was just ecstatic. It was this series of books that I loved. I read the first four books in high school, and Dune was something that I just, just, it was epic, you know. It was, to me, bigger than Star Wars, you know, in terms of its scale. And it's still never been done right, in my opinion. There have been some good attempts, but but that movie offended me so much, I just sort of did a, a parody of the poster and, and had it say, dumb, instead of Dune. I know that sounds stupid these now, but... 
that was sort of the inspiration for the cover story. And with Andre's articles and a bunch of stuff I had written, we put together this sort of declaration of principles and put that out. And Film Threat kind of evolved in different phases. First, it was like this Xerox fanzine. Then it went to newsprint. Then we kind of a little glossy for a second. Then I sold the magazine to Larry Flint, but then I spun off Film Threat Video Guide. And then I left the magazine for a short time and then got the rights back when Larry Flint decided he wasn't going to publish it. I had a thing called Writer First Refusal. And so I got the rights back. Then I published it as a magazine for maybe three issues. And this was at a time, this is like the late 90s, when uh, paper prices just skyrocketed. And so a lot of print magazines that were all counterculture magazines all tanked. They all just went out of business all at one time. Um, advertising was scarce. And I just decided, you know, I'm going to do an email newsletter and a website. And then eventually I'll relaunch the magazine. And then ultimately, within a few years, we had more people reading the website than we ever had at our at the height of the magazine, which I think our largest print run was 200,000 issues. Um, and then it just continued to evolve as a website, you know, going from, I mean, I, I could tell you because I personally sat down with every incarnation of it and would just physically draw it out and then and then do little mock-ups in Quark or Word and say, here's sort of the, the I didn't realize that what I was doing was something you should really use a program called Top Down for. And I would map out how the site worked. This was, you know, maybe this is a way longer answer to your question. I'm trying to be really honest and give you like the thumbnail version of it. Bring out a book actually about all of that because there's a lot of drama in between there. But this is, I mean, it was just the inspiration was really seeing Dune, having that suck, having a filmmaker I admired, I felt betrayed by him, and I thought, well, I'm going to start this magazine because I like punk rock fanzines. I like that attitude but I'm more of a movie guy than I'm a music guy. Although I love music stuff too, that inspires me. I, I think that people's memory of Film Threat is better than the magazine actually was, because I think at the time it was doing a lot of things that were like extremely radical, or it seemed then. Now I look back, it's like people talk like that and write about film like the way we did back then, every day on the internet. But at the time Film Threat came out in print, I was a pariah. I mean, you know, the studios hated me. Yes, this is Film Threat Magazine, and oh yeah, by the way, we're published by Larry Flint. That's what I was going to get to. Was it sucked? It did Larry it, Flint exert uh, any kind of real control? Because I noticed a difference between what I'm going to call the first incarnation of Film Threat and the Larry Flint era, and you go from what I considered the true independent to having Macaulay Culkin on the cover of the first Larry yeah, Flint let me, issue. Let me, let me address that because that's a really good question, but. I, I could just I can just address that directly. Larry Flynn had no uh, input, and I had one of the most surreal meetings with him once, where he was trying because I was sort of, you know, at the time I was uh, they considered me like this magazine prodigy because I would give advice to other magazines that were failing. I'd say, well, this video game magazine sucks, and here's what you need to do. And I even took over a bunch of their magazines for a time because I would come in, I'd change some things on the cover, I'd come up with some headlines that were interesting and funny, and and their magazine sales would go up. So uh, that was a conscious decision on my part because I I'm not sure how much you're aware of all the business and behind the scenes of Film Threat, which I'm gonna guess that you're not, which is fine. Just more of my observations. No, it's perfect. It's perfectly, it, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I was doing Film Threat as kind of this underground thing when I sold it to Larry Flint. Well, now we've got like, we have obligations to create something that's more mainstream because we're on more shelves. So one of the things, there's a great essay by Matt Graney about subvert the mainstream and how the way to subvert the mainstream is from the inside. So my intention 
with the Larry Flint version of film threat was because now we had a little bit of a budget. I was getting paid for the first time consistently, although not very much. I think I was making like 18 grand a year. Yeah. Uh, so, so my conscious decision was we need to make this mainstream successful and then leak in stories about Reservoir Dogs and underground films and Necromantic. But we split film threat into two magazines. When that Macaulay Culkin thing came out, which was a, a magazine, which was a, a cover story about former child stars, we split Film Threat into two magazines. The other magazine was Film Threat Video Guide, which was all the hardcore underground stuff that Film Threat sort of began with, but we'd cover mainstream stuff, but with sort of a, 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 a slant that was uh, definitely not things like Entertainment Weekly or mainstream crap like Premiere. So the idea was Film Threat is your more mainstream version, and then Film Threat Video Guide, which was you know, around, we basically split them in the same month and then they were coming out consistently. And I personally, I owned Film Threat Video Guide with uh, another guy that we started a video business with. So we started like this video label in order to help some of these filmmakers distribute movies. Like for example, Todd Phillips distributed a couple of his films. Todd Phillips, you might know, did the movies like The Hangover and Due Date, Road Trip. We did a collection of movies because he started the New York Underground Film Festival and we put out a collection of those. We put out his movie Chicken Hawk and we paid him residuals for his movies. So we basically just split the magazine. So the more hardcore thing that you loved about the old film threat was all in Film Threat Video Guide, but we cover mainstream stuff in Film Threat too, you know? I mean, it was just the way that we did it was we can't cover it in the same way that the mainstream magazines do. For example, the mainstream magazines would all do the... 100 hot lists or the 100 power people and we would do the frigid 50 which was the coldest people in hollywood which you know oddly enough doesn't make you a lot of friends but i've never really given a crap about that so from the outside it would seem like wow the magazine became more mainstream what it did was it split into two magazines and the other magazine was more what you were seeking for the old so maybe it wasn't on the same newsstand but we would always run advertisements for film threat video guide and film threat magazine so it was like basically rather than getting four magazines a year now you're getting like 10 magazines a year one's a little bit more mainstream but with the stuff leaked in because we had this column in there that was like underground right i mean it would be like entertainment weekly writing about some of the underground stuff which they never did so my idea was let's do a more mainstream thing and we can get people like Richard Kern and Nick Zed and and Todd Phillips and some of these under some of these up and filmmakers at the time. Let's actually cover them but in a magazine that'll be more mainstream and trick people into reading about it. Because there's no fucking way that the mainstream movie magazines like Movie Line and Entertainment Weekly or even Film Comment were gonna write about the people that I was interested in. So that was a conscious decision on my part, nothing to do with Larry Flint. The guy could barely form a coherent sentence when I knew him there. Um, and I only had a few meetings with him. I mostly dealt with the CFO of the company, this guy, Jim Coles. And I was really good. I just learned a lot from him about tricking people into giving you money to do things where you could get away with doing the kind of crap that I did. How did you end up actually selling Incarnation One to Larry Flint? How did they get interested in the magazine? Oh, my God. Well... It was actually a guy who was the editor of Hustler magazine, loved Film Threat. He was, he was reading it, loved it. He loved the parodies and the satire stuff that I did and wanted to hire me as a freelance writer. So I pitched him a few stories. Um, and then he said, look, there's an opening for an associate editor position at Hustler. Would you like to be the associate editor of Hustler magazine, which basically I was hired to write jokes. Um, I considered them in the realm of toilet poo-poo homo butt. 
that was kind of the the those are the subject the subject matter generally was around that range toilet poo poo homo well you'll see my name in those um early i didn't want to it's not something i put on my resume because i know that people have like sort of a some people have a sort of uh, snobbish attitude towards porn i don't care you know i wrote for it i put my name in it and i'm proud of the stuff that i wrote you know i even recycled gags from film threat you know we i would do movie parody posters and just come up with stupid jokes but a lot of it you know some political humor as well so I um so while I was working there, I was doing film thread on the side and stealing off flies using the fax machine, using the copier. I basically was getting like a bonus office uh, while I was doing film thread on the side. And I said, you know, I'm still going to do film thread on the side, even though you've hired me to do this job. It was it was my first professional job where I got a real paycheck. So it's kind of strange. I'm doing Hustler magazine during the day, coming up with stupid jokes, directing photo shoots with full frontal nude girls on Fridays. And then in my evenings, I would go home and work on Film Threat magazine. And to this day, I still have Tyvex envelopes I stole from Larry Flint's offices because I took so many office supplies home in my briefcase. You sure you want to put that out on the radio? I don't care. I don't think Larry cares either. <laughs> um, I stole office supplies. This is my, I you know, I steal things from hotels now. I can't resist if I see a really nice silver serving tray. I'm I'm kind of I kind of want to get it. It's uh, part of what you pay for <laughs> when you stay at a nice hotel. Anyways, so I was doing that on the side, and um, finally, I just got the balls enough because they loved the stuff I did. Larry personally loved the stuff I did in Hustler. He thought it was really funny to the point where he said, "I'm going to do an entire magazine just devoted to your jokes." So they did this thing called the Best of Hustler Bits and Pieces. So. And I had these guys craft a realistic-looking guy that looked like Tex Avery on the cover looking at a pair of a girl's tits. They loved the stuff, and I said, look, you know, I, this, is, this was my speech, how I sold them on doing Film Threat. I said, look, you do a alternative magazine that covers the world of adult and mature topics for men, Hustler magazine. You do an irreverent magazine about music called Rip, but you don't have an irreverent movie magazine. I have one. And they really liked the stuff that I'd done in Film Threat. So, sure, we'll buy it. And I don't want to go into the details of what the deal were because I'm saving that for my book. It's actually a really funny story that involves I, I refused to sign the contract until some certain things were in it. And the magazine was on press. It was about to be printed. And there were all these nervous phone calls back and forth to the printer. And they were supposed to halt printing of Film Threat magazine if I didn't sign the contract. And I refused to do it. <laughs> over over certain issues and without uh, going into detail I won I'm saving that story for the book but it's a really interesting story speaking of the book when's when is it coming out or are you still in the process of writing it's, it I'm still in the process it's going to be a couple of years I mean right now what I'm doing is I'm digitally archiving everything from the film thread archives I mean I've got like flat files and cabinets and I've got shelves of VHS videotapes all this stuff I'm archiving into onto a couple terabyte drives possibly to be used if someone wants to make a documentary, but I'll have all assets. And from those assets, I'm going to, I'm doing the book. Right now, I just have the outline and I'm just recounting the stories, but uh, it's kind of evolved into a different book altogether. Let's move off a of film threat for a moment and sure. move on to your IFC game show that you hosted. Oh, right. Yeah. How did that come about? What, what happened with it? Well, it's, it's one of my, um, I mean, I never wanted to be on TV. 
this is like the late 90s and I'd be doing film thread as an email newsletter and a website. Real simple. And one of the guys who worked at a place called Mindless Entertainment named Mark Cronin. Mark Cronin had um, worked on things like he did the Howard Stern show, the original Channel 9 show that Howard Stern did in New York. And Mark Cronin loved the stuff in Film Thread. He thought my writing was funny and called me in to do an audition. And I'm like, an audition for what? To be on t being on TV. This is a time. At the time, I was writing two books at once. It was torturous. I was writing uh, my film festival book. Or no, I was working on the second edition of my film festival book. And I was doing this book called The 50 Greatest Movies Never Made. I can't, yeah, I got to be focused on one major project. That's all I can do. And this was a real inconvenience. And so I went into this audition and I was like, whatever, what am I doing here? What's going on? What do you guys want me to do? What am I supposed to say? And they said, tell us what you thought of Star Wars episode one. Just, you know, a few thoughts off the top of your head. And I went off on a rant. I hated episode one. And I described it as, and this is something I use in my stand-up act. Um, I described the experience of seeing episode one as one of the most awesome things and one of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, on the one hand, you've got double-sided lightsabers, which is amazing. You've got Obi-Wan meeting Anakin for the first time. You've got the, um, the guy we know he's going to the Emperor and all these things being set up. It's awesome. And then it's terrible. It's kind of like, and then there's just like god-awful stuff, like Jar Jar stepping in poop and Anakin being called Annie and just all the dumb things that just made it horrible. And, and then meeting after meeting, you know, with the stupid Trade Federation and things that kids don't care about or, or even the fans of Star Wars like myself, old school fans. And I, I describe it as like, it's like having sex for the first time and you're like, oh my God, this vagina feels so great, but your mom is watching. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, this is awesome. I am plowing into this girl's vagina. It feels great. It's more than I ever hoped for. Mom! What I just said to you is, is kind of what I said in this audition. I didn't give a shit, you know, I just, that's what I, that's, that's what I told the guy in the audition. I said, are we done? Whatever, I left. Little did I know, having never auditioned for anything in my life, that all these actors that are here in Hollywood are desperate, sad human beings that care far too much about people liking them and crap like that, that I just don't have time for. And I didn't realize that when you go into an audition, you're, I don't know, supposed to really want the job or something. To me, it was just an inconvenience. From that, they, they thought the audition was great and wanted me to do uh, a spot on the show called The X Show, which Mark Cronin was doing, which was kind of like the man show, but it was daily, an hour daily. And I was to be their movie guy. So I would come in and they, they, I had a segment that they ended up calling The Gory Details. The Gory Details just was basically me doing rants like the one I did to you. But I would always try to find, and it was for at the FX network, I would always try to find ways that I could get away with saying stuff like, I could get away with doing so much, and I still do it till today. I get away with so much stuff, Attack of the Show. There, you have no idea the stuff I get away with that uh, they don't know about. I'll swear in sign language. I'll mispronounce swear words, which I know I can do. I can say that someone is a shithid. Um, so I get away with a lot only because I, I know kind of what the parameters are, and I just try to be clever with it. And to me, it ends up being better than just saying because that's lazy and who gives a So from that audition, you know, I did the X show and then the same company, Mindless Entertainment, was developing this basically competitive reality movie game show and they were looking for a host. I just, 
it was like, oh, okay, uh, sure, I'll come in, I'll do it. I didn't really audition for it. They just hired me because they'd already worked with me on The X Show. In fact, The X Show led to doing the new movie show also with Mark Cronin uh, at Mindless Entertainment and a guy named James Rowley, who he and I were just, we bonded from the second we met because we were both huge movie and the film fanatic was really his creation. So it was really as simple as I'd worked with this company before. We'd done two TV shows, new movie show and X show. And they said, we want you to host this game show. I said, great. I had to go to a game show camp to learn about all the laws. You know, like what are the legal things I can and can't say. And the worst part was, was standing on stage with all these people and not being able to talk to them because I can't show any sort of um, bias towards any contestant. I can't, I, I really can just say, and I can't even, uh, there's no time limit as to how long they can answer. I don't even think that they knew that. I mean, they could take as much time as they want sitting up on stage. Not being able to communicate with the contestants is also where our mutual friend Mike White ended up kind of getting screwed exactly. unintentionally on that show. Yeah, and un Now, here's when I can communicate with them, after they lose. So after the guys would lose, they would go sit in the audience, and then I would go over and be buddy-buddies with them, and we'd be talking about, well, you know, Logan's run. Yes, the effects are terrible in Logan's run, but, but oh, my God, Jenny Auger, she does full frontal in that movie, and it's PG-13. Um, and I'm not sure if she does quite full frontal. I think it's just movie. her chest, but yes. Uh, no, 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 there's butt in there. Trust me. It's, uh, I have it on Blu-ray. I, I love Logan's run is one of my uh, guilty pleasures. You're hosting the film fanatic. Was it a happy experience since you didn't really want it in the first place? Um, yeah, I really fell into doing TV. And it was fun from the standpoint of just learning that stuff. But what I did not like about Ultimate Film Fanatic, which basically made me not want to do television anymore, was the fact that I could not be myself on camera. I was merely a traffic cop. I could, I could, I had scripted jokes. Um, every once in a while I could throw in thing that was my own, but... It, I was being told what to dress and told what to say, and I hated it. I really did not enjoy that experience, aside from the fact that IFC tried to cheat me out of money. Uh, at the end, they just decided that they didn't want to pay me a significant sum of money in the contract. And I, uh, while I do enjoy some of the programming on IFC, I have nothing good to say about that network. The head of it, this guy Evan Shapiro, is a scumbag. And I have heard numerous experiences of uh, filmmakers that uh, don't feel so good about IFC. I, I don't even know what IFC is now. They run stuff about punk rock. They do stuff with comedy. Uh, who knows? I'm I, I, not a fan. And I know that uh, when they've tried to pull what they did on me, a lot of people left the network anyways. All the good people left the network. And I ended up right after that doing a show called Festival Pass that I created. And I got at least be some of help on camera. And um, I traveled to film festivals and did what I described. This is how I sold the show as it's like Wild On, but at a film festival. And I'm not wearing a thong. So it was interviews with filmmakers. And then just sort of it was sort of like part travel show, part show about independent film. Um, and that was something I did for the Stars Network. And we did like seven or eight episodes of that. From that, though, I really felt so burned by the experience at IFC where they just tried to make me into an image, a product. I just said, you know, I'm done with TV. I like to write books. I like to make films. I, I like to do my, if I'm going to do TV, I want to do it on my own terms. I'm not doing it. A guy named Gavin Purcell, who had interviewed me for a um, National Enquirer TV which I didn't want to do, but he convinced me because he actually sounded like a cool guy and gave me this good pitch and then how they would use me. And the guy ended up keeping his promise. Gavin Purcell, years later, after I'd done this thing for National Enquirer TV, 
became the uh, executive producer of a show that was called The Screensavers on Tech TV. He called me in for an interview and said, you know, we're doing this segment called DV Tuesday. And he didn't, he didn't audition me. I mean, really, other than that very first audition I did, um, I didn't audition for jobs. I just kept getting hired because people knew me. He said, you know, we're doing this thing called DV Tuesday. Would you want to do it? It's basically you talk for about five or six minutes about DVDs and you review them every week. I said, okay, I'll do it. I only have three conditions. First condition, I get to wear whatever I want within reason. And he's like, fine, you know. Um, so I could wear whatever T-shirt I wanted. I did have a T-shirt that once said, I heart your vagina. But I argued successfully with the lawyers that um, vagina is a medical term and Oprah says it every day. In fact, Oprah has a vagina. Personally, I think it's funny that you had to argue that with lawyers. Point of fact, favorite things to do is to argue with lawyers over things that are dumb. In any case, um, so I could wear whatever I want. The second demand was I could say whatever I want. Again, within reason, I'm not going to swear or drop F-bombs, but I can say whatever I want. No one's going to feed me my opinion. You're not going to say, oops, you know, we've got this advertiser. We don't want to We don't want to upset them. I don't care. I come in. I, my relationship is with the audience, and I consider that something that I built up. They trust me. I'm going to say whatever I want. The third thing I asked for, so he agreed to that one. He agreed to the first one, agreed to the second one. The last thing I said, I said, and all the DVDs I review, I get to keep them. And he said, no, I can't let you keep them. We have to keep them here uh, for a library for the, for the people who work here. So I was like, mm -hmm. all right, fine, I'll do it. So we worked out whatever the pay was at the time because it was just a freelance gig. It started as a freelance gig. And within three episodes, the screensavers changed. And I knew what the name was for weeks. It was Attack of the Show. And uh, Kevin Pereira was hosting at the time with Sarah Lane. Um, and another guy named Kevin Rose. And I came on, when I did my segment, I even like referenced those guys. And I was just being honest, you know, they're standing off camera on the side. I'm just, when you see me doing stuff on, I'm just being completely honest, which is why the producers are always afraid when I go on that I'm gonna say something I shouldn't, like, uh, like I've done in the past. But for me, there's really just, you know, I, I have a job to do and a, a service to provide, which is to give you my honest opinion and hopefully doing it in a way that's entertaining so you'll tune back. So um, it they changed the name to Attack of the Show. Uh, Tech TV became G4 TV. Within a year, they hired me on full time um, and had me doing other segments like uh, going to film festivals and covering movie junkets, again, on my terms. Uh, I hate movie junket coverage. I think that stuff is BS, but I try to do it in a way that makes it not seem like it's a sellout. So that's sort of, the, you got sort of the, the broad strokes version of my television career leading you up to here. And, I, and I've done other stuff with G4 and I have to say, it's the best experience I've had in television because they, to their credit, G4 allows me to be myself. I do, I'll say, you know, I really want to talk about, I think we had an issue where we were talking about the movie The Human Centipede. And if you know what the story of that film yeah. is about, it's difficult. I mean, I, 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 and I wanted to say, you know, say, can I say ATM, not in reference to an ATM machine, automated teller machine, which was a bank's used to dispense money. This ATM dispenses something completely different. Yes. So, yeah. so I was allowed to say it, but only once because more would be too harsh. Like I know, for example, I guess the rule is is that you can only say douchebag twice on Attack of the Show. So if it's uttered twice by someone, then everybody else know, there knows, well, we can't say it a third time because that would be considered excessive. I, but I, I always look for way. I mean, look, the most important thing for me in doing any of the television stuff I've done is really just being honest. And 
they've never, what's great is with the lawyer, this guy, Keith, who works at G4 TV, the lawyer, he's our standards and practices guy and legal, legal department. Um, he never says no to anything directly. He, he tries to help me figure out how I can get away with saying it in a way that may, that will actually make it to air. The one thing I couldn't say, I wanted to say about Kevin Pereira once, I said, we're like a gay married couple without the anal sex. But because that implies penetration, it's something that I couldn't say. But it's it's great. I mean, I, I have to, I really, to G4's credit, they, they want people to be themselves. But the problem that you begin to find is that most of the people in, who work in television are incredibly bland human beings. Really, if you ask them to take a stand on anything, there's no stand to take. And most of the ex, so-called political experts that you see on your MSNBCs or your CNNs, when they say that so-and-so is from the O'Donnell Group, the O'Donnell Group is a P.O. box in Texas that this woman, whose last name is O'Donnell, happens to own, and she's some political strategist. Yes, it's it's unbelievable to me. I, I like to consider myself media aware, and having worked in, um, you know, I've written for newspapers, I've written for magazines all over the place, uh, written for websites, I've done... Uh, you know, my fair share of TV, I've done books, I've, I've done internet, I've worked on every kind of possible media. I can smell BS when I see it. I have a highly tuned detector. And let me just say that most of the people that you're watching in the media that present stuff have no idea what the heck they're talking about. And what I like about my experience with G4 is Chris Hardwick knows what he's talking about when it comes to tech. He is one of the coolest guys. I mean, and the funny thing is, is that Mindless Entertainment, that was the company that did Singled Out. So the funny thing was, he and I sort of came up at the same time with completely separate careers, him starting um, in stand-up comedy and then, you know, going to doing these shows where he's an amazing host. And then I'm doing other stuff going completely and uh, working for Mindless Entertainment was the production company, this guy, Mark Cronin. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, both kind of came up and then here we are, we converged together, but we've had these sort of careers where it's like we just keep kept crossing paths but never working together, finally working together. And uh, the guy's amazing and uh, inspired me to, to, and sort of the universe, to, I, I can't tell you, like, since I was a kid, you should do stand-up comedy. You're funny. You're, this is the thing that's, strangers, I'll be at the grocery store, just making jokes and being friendly with people, which I think is something I picked up from my grandparents, who would talk to anybody that they saw and just be real and funny and, and be pleasant. I mean, they were great hosts. They hosted dinner parties was their big claim to fame, you know? Um, they'd be in the local newspaper for hosting dinner parties. And I just, that, that taught me some sort of bizarre social skill, although there are a lot of other ones I have, I'm horrible at. But, um, so I finally recently started to do stand-up comedy and just developing, I know by the end I'll have a CD out of stuff, but, uh, uh, for now I'm just, uh, having fun with this format and, and writing jokes and, and doing monologues. You already hit on something that Brad, my co-host, wanted me. He wanted me to get you to talk about DVD Doosday, so you sure. already hit on that without even being asked. He, he said his favorite segment is when you went through all the Star Wars bootlegs you have. <laughs> he said he just absolutely loved that segment. Yeah, well, I, the thing is this, I always, and this is my whole thing, point, you know, when we were talking earlier about film threat and how you had observed that it became mainstream. 
You think I'm gonna sit here and tell you that, no, it wasn't mainstream? Of course, because I wanted it to be mainstream so that I could actually prom help promote filmmakers that I personally loved and endorsed, like at the time, an up-and-coming uh, Quentin Tarantino, who, who was going to make Reservoir Dogs in Super 8 because he couldn't get the money. And um, I knew him through, I mean, various Scott Spiegel, Becker, um, he came to a party at my house just before he was going to go into production. And, and I don't know, I just, to me, it's like the whole thing was the mainstream thing was a ruse to get people to to read the magazine so that then I could trick them into learning about other things. And DVD stays the same thing. There's mainstream movies that I feel obligated to review. Yes, Avatar. But then I'm going to sneak in um, a review of Winnebago Man. So, so it's that same philosophy and and you know look if you look at any most of the people covering movie stuff to be honest they're really lazy and most people who cover entertainment media i know because i get the same press releases that they do they're just regurgitating press releases entertainment and journalism together i i want to i want to laugh it's a joke i mean if anything publicists have as much if not more power than the people actually uh spewing the media out See, so, I've worked in TV news for the last 10 years. Half the time, we would just get the AP release, and then they would read that word for word on the air, and that's what the anchor's reading. Yeah. You don't question it. You know, it came from this source, which I guess you trust. Well, the source for most entertainment news, you know what it is? It's publicists. Publicists write that stuff. There's no questioning. And to me, I do not want to be manipulated by a publicist. And the whole thing is, as an editor at Film Threat, I was like, I'm going to decide what's important to this audience because I'm going to guess that if I'm enthusiastic about the Turkish Star Wars or the films of Richard Kern or some up-and-coming filmmaker like Todd Phillips, those are the people that I'm going to want to write about, not because this movie is opening wide in the theaters. I think that's lazy. And so that's why I tried to with my... I mean, look... I seek out your DVDs and videos and whatnot. And, and, you know, yes, with two clicks of a button, you can pretty much download anything on the Internet. But, you know, not for the most part, a lot of the stuff that I'll find. And I'll, I'll find a way to kind of just organically fit it into the segment. And I do this, you know, as much as I possibly can on DVDs Day. I'm, I'm doing a thing where we're covering the Walking Dead DVD, and then I'm going to do a roundup of zombie movies on DVD without of the dead in the title. Yeah, so that will you'll be able to find that on the internet. If you like zombie movies, uh, check out uh, my segment. Um, you can go to uh, thatchrisgore.com where I repost all of my videos. If you just look up zombies, you'll probably find it. How did you feel about the success and or non-success of my big fat independent film when that finally came out? Well, it depends on how you define success. Um, it's successful from the standpoint of that it made money. It's successful in my mind as I learned, I learned a lot of lessons about how to make a good film. And one of these days I hope to make a good film. And I'm not saying that my big bad independent movie is bad. If I had to rate myself, I'd give myself a C. I'd unfortunately give myself my, uh, my own self a rent. But um, it was a great experience from that standpoint. It was unsuccessful because that's what all the critics decided that it was supposed to be because I really felt that there was, frankly, a lot of professional jealousy. I mean, I'm a guy who was a, a, a guy who was known mostly for, not that that's all I did, I was known mostly for critiquing movies. I do not consider myself a film critic at all. In fact, I give my three out of five stars, I had to rate myself as a critic, because there are much better critics out there. I offer perspective that is different. I will offer insights that you may not have noticed. and. Even more than offering insight, it's more important that I be entertaining and funny. Because I think that 
what that will do at the end of the day will make you remember most of the things I say, whereas for the most part, if you watch a critic, you'll remember what, what maybe the verdict was, but you're not going to remember what they said. So my whole idea with my Big Fat Independent movie, I had uh, met Rod Lurie and, and become friends with him, and he was one of my favorite critics to read because he was so brutal. He wrote a review of Batman Returns. I can quote you what he said about Danny DeVito. He said Danny DeVito's character as the Penguin looked like a pair of shaved testicles. And then he proceeded to rip the film apart. And I agree. I mean, you look back, those early Batman movies were especially in like current Chris Nolan uh, incarnation of Batman. But in any case, I met Rod Lurie and he had done a film recently, The Contender, which I thought was amazing. He did a movie before that with, uh, that was great. A, both independent films. Contender was actually picked up by Dream, DreamWorks. And I, I was talking to him, you know, just like, God, you know, I really would like to make a film. And he gave me this sort of pep talk and said, look, here's the funny thing. No one who covers sports thinks, I can go throw touchdowns like Ben Roethlisberger. You know, I, I can go and play baseball like A-Rod. No one who covers, covers politics thinks, I could be Secretary of State. I could be President. But people who cover entertainment think, I could make a movie. And the point is, they can. And so when I thought about that, like, yeah, I could do this. I have all these ideas. So I thought, you know, I, I want to produce a film. I want to raise the money, do sort of all these jobs. I specifically didn't want to direct the film because I didn't want my position previously or mostly being known as a critic to actually harm the movie, although that plan kind of went out the window. And I thought, well, I'm going to make a spoof movie about independent film called my big fat independent movie i came up with the name did a logo and a website uh co-wrote the script with a couple of guys who had written some stuff for the mtv movie awards um raised the money the financing fell through got money a couple weeks later from some investors who really saw that i mean i just looked like i had my shit together and you know it wasn't the most pleasurable experience but it was one of those things where i learned so much that i'm working on a new film project right now that i'll talk about when it's done based on the results. I just, I feel like I was crucified in the media about it. I mean, look, I was just trying to, they, they really don't want you to cross over. And, you know, I'd done all these other things, you know, I television, I've written books, you know, uh, Ultimate Film Festival Survival Guide, the 50 Greatest Movies Never Made, the complete DVD book. I'm working on this new book, which I don't have a title for. So I'd done all these other things. I really didn't consider myself as only a film critic to me that I just felt like, well, I'm kind of, I, I, that's just not, it doesn't encompass everything that I do, which is why if I give you my business card, it just says that I'm a nerd liberty. That might be the title of my book, Nerd Liberty. But it's like, I'm not like a, you know, I'm known. I'll get recognized when I go out. If I'm at Comic-Con, I'm like a rock star. I mean, it's the only time I get a taste of what it's like to be a rock star because I can't walk 10 feet there. I actually wear a mask when I go to Comic-Con if I want to shop because I'm constantly stopping to take photos and stuff and talk to people. And I've been going there for 20 years. So, you know, I, I felt like my Big Fat Independent movie was sort of a necessary experience. It was uh, a cathartic. I mean, it felt really good. and I got this great taste of what it's like to, um, you know, make a movie and have that kind of sense of satisfaction. And then, uh, you know, and, and then the worst part is you take time off to do something like that and realize like, hey, I need a regular paycheck. All right, as you could see, this was not an ass-kissing interview. I did ask him some of the problems that the magazine had, such as the Macaulay Culkin thing and the going mainstream, and you know what? He answered the question quite well, I thought, because especially going back and rereading these magazines after I conducted this interview, he was right. 
they did use the mainstream aspect of the magazine to sneak in all the weird stuff. A lot of those people who called Film Thread out for selling out, and I was one of them, so I admit I was wrong, we were all wrong. And I think that's pretty cool. Film Thread, unfortunately, only exists as a web page nowadays, and uh, filmthreat.com, which you, you people out there know how I feel about web pages versus paper magazines, if you, especially if you listen to Lost in the Static, where I did a whole rant on this that... I prefer the paper magazines. I don't like an internet magazine. It just it bothers me. I want to hold it. I want to be able to flip the page. I want to be able to carry it with me. I want to be able to collect it. I don't like internet magazines. I also want to take the time to say, hey, any of you out there, if you have any of these old magazines that I brought up, if you have any old old magazines that are cool, if you've got any old science fiction, horror, fantasy, comic book magazines, any old hustlers, penthouses, anything like that, contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com, and if you're asking for reasonable prices, I will take these off your hands for you. I am a magazine collector. You wouldn't believe how many magazines I've got. All nicely bagged. I mean, I've got role-playing game magazines, Twilight Zone the magazine, tons of Omnis, Chiller Theater. You wouldn't believe all the weird crap I collect. So, I mean, unfortunately, I wish Brad had been here so we could have discussed some of the cool magazines and, unfortunately, what happened to them. I mean, seriously, if, if you were around in, say, 1992 and you go to the bookstore and check out the magazine rack, compare that image in your head of what you remembered from that to going to the bookstore today and just the vapid nonsense and overproduced ridiculousness of all the genre magazines out there today. It's just, it's sad when Fangoria is the high end and they're as bad as they are. And then, and then Fangoria even, t- to keep ragging on them, might as well make this an anti-Fangoria episode, they had that horrible Fangoria radio program on Sirius. And I admit, I called into it, I listened to it, I won some DVDs off of it. But the problem is, it wasn't very good. Debbie Rashan was great. From, from the trauma movies and a lot of independent cinema, she actually was a really good host. And I like Twisted Sister, I really do. But D. Snyder was not a good co-host. He never knew who they were talking to. He never knew any of the films that they brought up. He never knew any of the directors, any of the writers. And even when he would be sent screeners, he was too busy to actually watch it. He'd be like, he'd be like oh, I watched like a half hour of it, and then I had to go do this other thing. And so he was never prepared for anything, and he never added anything to the proceedings. Then you had Tony Timpone, who basically w- was was just a yes man. He was just there to to kind of be the Ed McMahon of the show, and he added really nothing to the show. He was just meh. And the show eventually, people started to see through it, because that, just like the magazine, was full of a bunch of ass-kissing. It was... You know, we're going to have the director of The Final Destination on, and we're going to praise the movie like crazy the night it opens when we got the director on, 
and yet the movie turns out to be terrible, and you kind of see all of them, the director outright asked them what they thought of the movie, and they start dancing around the issue, desperately trying not to tell him how bad they thought the movie was, because they had made a deal with the studio that they would help promote the movie. That is what is a bad radio show, and Fangoria just exemplifies everything that's wrong with that, both in magazine form and in radio form. So, I mean, I didn't want to make this all ranting. I didn't want to make this all just bitching about things. But Brad's not here to rein me in and control me, so this is what you guys get. Hope you liked the interview with Chris Gore. He was an incredibly nice guy, and I really appreciate him taking the time because he's also one of those people that's got a ton of stuff going on. So the fact that he was able to take 40 minutes out of his day and talk to me, I really appreciate that. And I honestly am a fan of film threats. So, all right, I'm going to sig out here. Hopefully Brad will be back next week. 1201beyond at gmail.com. Night, guys. Like all the BD can People came running from everywhere